The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning, Grace Family Church. Good morning to all of you who are our guests this morning. We've realized that baby blessings really bring people out. You know, so we're, we're glad to have you with us. My prayer is that as we sit under God's word together this morning, that he would bless us uh, with joy for this Christmas season. Would you please make your way with me to Luke chapter 2? As Sheldon said, we'll be in verses 22 to 40. I have three reasons for choosing this particular text today. Firstly, we've been making our way through Luke's account of the early church in the book of Acts since September. Since we're pausing that journey just for this Sunday, I can't think of any better place to focus on the meaning of Jesus' incarnation than to look at a story in Luke's former book. Secondly, this story of Joseph and Mary dedicating Jesus to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem seems like a wonderful one to preach in this season of many baby blessings. Today makes four in two weeks, so we are racking them up. And it really is wonderful to be able to celebrate with families, to celebrate with parents. We love the children whom God has blessed us with, but God's greatest blessings come to us not through offspring, but through his son whom he has given to us. Thirdly, Advent is about anticipation. In the Christian calendar, Advent is a season leading up to Christmas, beginning four Sundays before December. The word Advent means coming. For centuries, Christians have used this time. We're okay? Okay. Yeah, for centuries, Christians have used this time, this season, to look back, thinking about what it must have been like to wait for Jesus' first coming and to look forward as we wait for his second coming. This passage captures, captures that anticipation and Jesus' arrival for two characters whom we'll meet in the temple. Simeon and Anna. It's a wonderful text to help us to stir our own anticipation for Jesus. And you see, the thing about it is that our anticipation for him can be so easily muted by the noise of both good things and hard things in our lives. So let's look now to God's word, asking for help to hear him speaking to us now through it. Luke 22, Luke 2, sorry, reading from 22 to 40. This is God's holy word. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought, him up, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. No, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. One of the memories I have of Christmas when I was growing up is having to wait until Christmas Day after we returned from church before you could open any gifts. It was almost unbearable. I mean, you'd see these gifts under the tree. They'd be wonderfully wrapped. The lights would be there shining off the shiny paper. And you'd see them and it's like, okay, come on. It's almost midnight, mommy. Come on. No, you have to wait. Children, are there any gifts you have at home that your parents say you cannot open until Christmas Day? Yes? Yeah, you have to wait. As painful as that is, it's one of the aspects of our contemporary celebrations that is quite appropriate. You see, the incarnation of Jesus was a gift for which God's people had to wait. The incarnation of Jesus is a gift for which God's people had to wait. Simeon and Anna, whom we meet in this passage, were waiting for Jesus. And as the passage shows and we'll consider, they waited for a very long time. But even their lifetime of waiting is put in proper perspective when we recognize that God had promised salvation for his people centuries before either of them was born. Have you ever, after waiting until Christmas Day to open gifts, forgotten to open a gift? That happened to anybody? No, no never? Yeah, I mean, I can recall at least on one occasion where we didn't notice a gift. It kind of got buried among the pile of torn wrapping paper for a while until you discovered it. You're cleaning up and you realize, wait, there's another gift here. That, who's this for? Nobody opened this. One of the very real dangers we face in this season is that Jesus will be right here under our noses, but overlooked. Christmas time is good when it helps us to see him again. But our hearts and heads can be filled with many things at this busy time. Sometimes it's not so much that we miss him completely. It's that we fail to recognize and be freshly affected by his significance. Simeon and Anna did not miss Jesus in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the temple precincts. In the kindness of God, they recognized him. They spoke of his life-transforming significance. Here in this text, Luke has unwrapped God's gift so that we can get a better look at him, so that we can recognize who has been given to us. What I'd like to do is to unwrap this text, working from the outside in, so we can discover how it helps us to recognize Jesus. We'll begin with considering the obedience of Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, that brackets this whole account. Then we'll consider the descriptions of Simeon and Anna, who recognize Jesus. 
Finally, we're going to look at the heart of this passage as it helps us to see Jesus, to recognize him through what Simeon says about him. I'll give each of those sections a heading as we go. So here's our first one. According to the law. This passage we're reading picks up right after Luke's striking account of the events in Bethlehem, complete with an angelic announcement conveyed by shepherds who made this unexpected visit to Mary and Joseph to see the newborn Jesus lying in a manger. In verse 21, our author notes, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke does not want us to forget that this was no ordinary child. The day we're considering was 40 days after Jesus' birth. According to the law, a woman who had given birth was considered ceremonially unclean. She had to wait until the end of a period of purification before she could visit God's sanctuary, the temple. And then to complete the process, she needed to bring two animals with her to the temple to give to the priest, one for burnt offering and the other for sin offering. All of this was for purification because she had a child. Thank God for Jesus, huh? I'm glad nobody's bringing me animals this morning, you know, like to tear birds in two or anything like that. I'll take this role on this side of the cross. There was something else going on, though. Mary and Joseph took the occasion to complete, uh, the occasion of the completion of her purification to present Jesus to the Lord. According to the law, every male firstborn child was set apart for God in a special way and needed to be redeemed. Mary and Joseph weren't actually required to take Jesus with them to the temple, but it probably made sense to make the journey together since Bethlehem was only about eight kilometers from Jerusalem, meaning around the distance from Papin to Halfway Tree. Mind you, on foot. There's an echo in this story of the Old Testament story of Hannah, who prayed earnestly to God for a son, and then brought the boy Samuel to the temple to give him back to the Lord. Luke seems to be indicating that Mary and Joseph understood that this little boy did not belong to them, but to God. Jesus is unique, of course, but recognizing that in a similar way, our children are gifts from God and do not belong to us, but to Him, helps us to approach the task of parenting with faithfulness, with humility, and with dependence on God. Notice this in the text. Luke mentions the law three times between verses 22 and 24, and then once more again in verse 39. He says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Why is Luke underlining this about Jesus' parents? I think he wants us to recognize them not only as favored, but as faithful people. Everything that happens in this story is packaged within the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary to God's law. They didn't just throw out the manual and wing it. I mean, the Messiah is here. Why do we need this stuff? They did what God said they should do in his word, and they did it all. I can't summarize this any better than the commentator Tom Schreiner. Luke reminds us that Joseph and Mary were marked by ordinary, everyday obedience to what God commanded. They experienced some remarkable events at Jesus' birth, including the words of Simeon and Anna recorded here. But most of their lives consisted of trusting and obeying the Lord, day in and day out, year in and year out. This ordinary, everyday obedience that marked the lives of Jesus' parents was inconvenient and costly. As we already saw, it involved walking eight kilometers with a newborn uh, just over a month after giving birth for Mary. 
But there's another detail here. The sacrifice that they brought, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons, was what was stipulated according to the law for the poor to bring. Those who could not afford to bring a lamb. So obedience required them to use what little they had to buy these birds. These favored and faithful people were poor people. We're still looking at the outer wrapping of this passage. But long before we get to the center, to the spectacular things that Simeon is going to say about Jesus, there's much for us to ponder and treasure. God's purposes often come to pass amidst everyday obedience. God's purposes often come to pass amidst everyday obedience. Mary and Joseph's visit to the temple that day was not in response to, angelic, to an angelic message. Remember, this had been going on in their lives on and off for the last few months. But today was not that, that wasn't the case. It was a response to the instructions of God's word given to all of God's people. Yet that faithfulness and obedience put them exactly where they needed to be on that day for God to bless them and others through, in an extraordinary way. While this was a unique event in redemptive history, God continues to work out his redemptive purposes every day as he spreads the aroma of Christ far and wide. And as it was in the lives of Mary and Joseph, he does much more than we expect amid our everyday obedience. Here's the thing. God is sovereign. He can chase us down like he did Jonah in the Old Testament when we abandon the place of faithfulness, when we run from his will, you know, the storm at sea, the, the huge fish vomit and all. Or he can find us in the place of faithfulness. Based on the examples we have in scripture, I'd like to suggest that the latter is less traumatic and less expensive. I want to commend you, I want to commend to you everyday obedience to God's word. The example that we see here in Joseph and Mary. I'm grateful that I didn't have to buy lambs or birds when any of my children were born. But God's word has much to say to us in great detail about how we are to live our lives every day with those around us. Much of what God calls us to is inconvenient and expensive. And sometimes when we feel that, what we start to, what we, the temptation we feel is to become selective with our obedience. And we say, okay, God, I'll obey you in these things, but don't ask me about that. Don't ask me to do that. But instead, let's resolve to do everything according to God's law. That's what faithfulness looks like. And we have not only the example of Jesus' parents, but of Jesus himself, who was faithful to God in the extreme inconvenience of the incarnation. And at the incomprehensible cost of the cross. We have both his example and his power through union with him. I want to commend you for your everyday faithfulness. As we've walked with so many of you, our members, we see this faithfulness expressed in how you love your families and friends. We see it in how you approach your work each day, even when employers or clients are unreasonable. We see it in you mothers and grandmothers in how you faithfully serve in and from your homes in ways that are often overlooked. We see it in those who serve this local church faithfully week after week. May God continue to strengthen us for everyday faithfulness. Jesus' parents' everyday obedience became the occasion for meeting two worshippers, Simeon and Anna. They too show themselves to be members of God's faithful remnant. Luke has quite a bit to say about them. So let's consider the witnesses who are waiting. In verse 25 of our text, Luke introduces a character who will play an important role in helping us to recognize Jesus. 
He says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This description of Simeon links him with the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, whom Luke describes in chapter 1, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna are all members of a godly remnant in Israel, whom God chose to participate in and witness the dawn of salvation in his son, Jesus. It underscores the fact that God's people are marked by faithfulness. Luke describes Simeon as a man of impeccable character. In his commentary on Luke, Leon Morris explains, Righteousness shows that he behaved well towards people, while devout signifies careful about religious duties. Luke also notes that Simeon was waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel. Now, that phrase is a window that looks out on the vast landscape of God's promises through, through the prophet Isaiah made to his suffering people. Here are two such references. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 49, 13. And Isaiah 66, 13 says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Simeon was waiting for the fulfillment of these promises in a long-awaited person. He was in possession of a peculiar promise. The Holy Spirit had shown him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That, that, that word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. The king whom God was planning and had promised to send to save his people. Because of that promise and, his, and Simeon's response that we'll see in verse 29, most readers and commentators assume that Simeon was quite old by this time. So think about it. How long might Simeon have been waiting on this promise? 20 years? 40 years? More? Waiting is what links Simeon with Anna, whom we meet in verse 36. Luke points out that she was well advanced in years. She too had been waiting, a fact which becomes clear when she recognized Jesus and began to speak encouragement to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, paralleling Simeon's hope. These two witnesses, their faces radiant, though etched deeply with the lines of age, stand side by side as a portrait of a tremendous truth. God's faithful people are marked by hope in his promises. God's faithful people are marked by hope in his promises. Even in the darkness of waiting described by the prophet Isaiah, these two lived with their eyes eastward, straining to see the first beams of promised light break the horizon. God's faithful people are marked by hope in his promises. Surely that should be the case with us. Surely we have much more reason to be marked by hope than Simeon and Anna did. They could not have possibly understood the magnitude of the redemption that Jesus would accomplish and the love he would display. They recognized him, but what they could not have recognized was that the Christ they anticipated was born to die. Standing there in the temple precincts, they could not possibly have understood that all of the sacrifices that were offered there foreshadowed a greater sacrifice. His death for our sin. We have so many advantages over them. 
we look back on God's faithfulness to His promises. As Galatians 4, 4-5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, but He lives in us. Simeon was waiting for the comfort of Israel. We have the comforter himself with us and in us. Even though our sin still beats us up from time to time, he bears witness to us that we are not slaves to sin, but sons of the Father, and therefore fellow heirs with Christ. So we can look forward then to seeing God's faithfulness in the future. Our possession of the Spirit is a down payment, guaranteeing that God will give us the inheritance he promised. So, Here's a question then. Why are so many of us so hopeless so often? Could it be that we're looking in the wrong direction? Could it be that we're more, fo- more focused on our sin than on our Savior? Could it be that we fixate on looking around us at our current circumstances instead of looking ahead of us to the horizon towards the promises of God? Could it be that instead of looking back at what Jesus has accomplished for us, we're desperately trying to figure out what he's doing in our lives right now as we wrestle with our disappointments and our difficulties? Like the Israelites in the desert, we walk through dry places with God's miraculous deliverance behind us and the land that he promised in front of us. Just like them, we constantly attempt to interpret our circumstances and histories as if they are an inspired text which should make God's love for us indisputably clear. We pick our stories apart, pendulum swinging erratically between he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Not recognizing that we are living unfinished stories of God's grace that are a tiny part of God's cosmic story of love and redemption. And we are often crippled by anxiety as we, dwell on, as we dwell on future uncertainties rather than on the certainty of our future in Him. God's faithful people are marked not by hope in their circumstances, but by hope in God's promises. And we're given snapshots of the effect of that hope on our lives in the description of Simeon and Anna. Simeon shows us that holiness is rooted in hope. Thus, 2 Peter 3, 11-12 tells us that because of what we know of the future, we ought to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Anna lived as a widow for decades following her husband's death, seven years into marriage. She's a great example in the face of loss and disappointment of looking to God and holding on to hope, expressed through staying near to God and worshiping in prayer and fasting. Her response to recognizing Jesus shows us that there is joy that is offered to us that is not dependent on our circumstances. And that joy will lead us to do what these witnesses to Jesus' arrival did. Praise God and speak to others of Jesus. God's people are marked by faithfulness to His commands and hope in His promises. And as we'll see, God used these things to reveal that Jesus was the Christ. Let's focus on the center of this passage, what Simeon's words reveal about Jesus, and let's use the heading, Seeing God's Salvation. So this is our third and final heading, Seeing God's Salvation. Look with me at verse 27. Note that Simeon did not happen to run into Jesus and his parents in Jerusalem that day. This was a divine appointment, a lot like we saw last week in the book of Acts, where Philip was 
directed by the Spirit to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit whom was on Simeon, the same Spirit who effected Jesus' conception in Mary's womb, arranged this reception in the temple courts. And think about it. What could Jesus do as a 40-day-old baby? I mean, not much more than open his eyes and wriggle around a bit and require changing. So how did Simeon recognize this helpless, normal-looking child as the Lord's Christ? Because of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit caused him to recognize who Jesus was. Mary and Joseph would have passed a lot of people that day on the road from Bethlehem and in the temple precincts, but only Simeon saw who Jesus truly was. Only Simeon and Anna perceived his significance in God's plan. Once again, though this was a unique day in salvation history, it telegraphs what it telegraphs, it telegraphs what would be true for everyone who has ever recognized Jesus. The Holy Spirit causes us to recognize Jesus. There's no other explanation for why anyone would look at Jesus, a poor Jewish child who grew up to die a slave's shameful death on a cross, and see that this man is God incarnate. I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, and author Glenn Scrivener was explaining just the implications of the cross, things I hadn't even really thought about. I mean, those of us who have been around Christianity for a while understand that the cross was shameful. Uh, people in Roman society would not even speak of it in polite company. Uh, we've said this before, but a Roman citizen could not be crucified. But here's the effect of crucifixion. What the Romans were saying is, we're putting this person on display, and this is a message that you do not follow this person. What they have done, we despise, and you do not follow them. Why would anyone, think of Luke now, why would, think of Acts that we're going through, why would anyone look at that person and follow him? Why would anyone want to be called a Christian? It must be that the Holy Spirit has revealed that this man is God incarnate. What the New Testament explains to us is that the, as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, the power of the Spirit changes the hearts of some to behold and believe in Jesus. For others, the word of the cross hits them as foolishness. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ, my prayer is that right now the Spirit is at work opening your eyes to recognize, to receive, and to rejoice in Jesus. If He's doing that, we would love to help you to take your first steps as a baby in Christ. So please feel free to talk to Sheldon, to Sean, to me after the service, or to any of those you know who are following Jesus. Even after we come to faith in Christ, whenever we recognize Jesus in the Scriptures, that's the work of the Spirit. That's, why, that, that, that's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches. And I'm convinced also that as we look to God, He helps us to recognize Him even in our suffering. Not necessarily to see why things are happening, but to be aware of His presence and that He has good purposes that He's working through the work of the Spirit in our hearts. When Simeon recognized Jesus, he took Him in his arms and praised God. For a brief moment, Simeon held God. Jesus, the one who holds all things together. What he says right here and afterwards to Mary and Joseph reveals much about the significance of Jesus. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. God had kept his promise and in that moment Simeon was ready to face death. He had seen the dawning of the light and he didn't feel like he needed to stick around for much more. God would keep his promise. 
the brightness of the day surely would come. Recognizing Jesus as the Lord's Christ, the fulfillment of His promised salvation, helps us to face even death with peace. That's a gift because we live in a world where people are running as hard as they can from death. They are trying to stay as young as they can for as long as they can. And nobody's thinking that, yeah, but I'm going to die eventually. And we watch our culture. We face death with such fear, such uncertainty. But salvation transforms death into a doorway into the presence of God. Surely recognizing Him can help us to live with peace also. For my eyes have seen your salvation. At the heart of Simeon's exuberant expression of praise and confidence is this. God's salvation is a person. A person whom we must recognize, whom we ought to receive and rejoice in. That's what we see in this text. Jesus is the embodiment of God's salvation for everyone all over the world in every culture and every situation. As we saw in Acts, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We are right to focus our attention on this Jewish baby and worship him. He is God's chosen king for all peoples. We don't need a made-up celebration to validate our cultural identity. He came for all peoples. He is Israel's glory and a, and, and a light that reveals God to the rest of us. The author David Murray makes this spectacular connection between this passage and Exodus. Simeon identified the bright glory cloud that shepherded Israel through the wilderness in the Old Testament as the Son of God. He was snuggling in his arms. What was cloud and fire was now flesh and blood. So let's work out some implications. What this means is that salvation is not a collection of truths that we must embrace. We are not saved by believing the right ideas, by having the right idea about what God is like. Salvation is not a set of rules that we keep in hopes of God accepting us. We don't obey in order for God to save us. We obey because He has saved us. We obey because we are already in Christ. Salvation is a person we must be in relationship with. When Simeon spoke about Jesus, Joseph and Mary marveled at his words. It's not that they hadn't heard angels and others say spectacular things about Jesus. But I guess just like us, it's amazing to hear it again. It's amazing to hear more. Simeon blessed them and said something peculiar and perturbing to Mary. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, what is that about? Tom Schreiner offers some help. God had destined that those who belong to Jesus, who he says will be many, will fall before they rise. Probably the same group will both fall and rise. In other words, suffering will precede glory for Jesus' disciples. Those who belong to Jesus will be vindicated ultimately, but not immediately. Simeon warned that Jesus would suffer and his suffering would be felt particularly by Mary, his mother. Though he was the Lord's Christ, he would not be universally embraced by Israel. He would divide opinion and be opposed. And how people respond to him would reveal their hearts. And that's still true. How we respond to Jesus reveals our hearts. There's no neutral position. 
When presented with Jesus, everyone chooses him or rejects him. Even at that tender age, Luke wants us to recognize the grace of God on Jesus. This passage concludes with Joseph and Mary returning to their hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus grew up, gaining strength and wisdom with God's grace resting on him. And the grace of God still flows through him, even to us. So if we were to gather together then the treasures from this passage and put a bow around them, what would we have in front of us? Jesus is God's salvation for, for whom we faithfully wait by recognizing and rejoicing in him. Jesus is God's salvation for whom we faithfully wait by recognizing and rejoicing in him. God's long-promised salvation arrived in the flesh in Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago. He has been given to us. That's what we celebrate rightly at this time of year. We once walked in darkness, but as those reunited to Jesus by faith, we walk in the light. That means that our waiting is different from that of Simeon and Anna. Yet we too must wait for the completion of Christ's work to be with Him, our Savior who is our treasure. And waiting is always hard, isn't it? It takes its toll on us. Let's learn from Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna. Let's strengthen our hearts for faithfulness, for everyday obedience to God's commands. For, for us, that comes through continually recognizing who Jesus has become for us and rejoicing in our salvation in Him. Let's continually feed on His Word where He's revealed. Let's encourage each other in Him and remind each other of His faithfulness and His promises. Let's seek to be filled with the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit so that we'll be enabled to see the ways Jesus is with us in the marveling, sorry, in the marvelous, in the maddening, and in the mundane. All of what we seek is the work of the Spirit and the gift of God to us in Christ. We can't manufacture it, but we can open our arms to receive it. And what God gives us in all of this is joy. When we consistently see Him in the Scriptures and recognize His presence with us in our circumstances, we will rejoice in Him and He will be on our lips. Jesus is God's salvation for whom we wait faithfully by recognizing and rejoicing in Him. May we speak of Him to those who are waiting for His return and to those who need to see Him clearly for the first time. Let's pray together. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.